Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 52. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious files, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel, and a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. And as always, for these chats, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Bromley. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great. Looking forward to uh, reviewing this. I'm saying we got a lot of lot of really good movement in this Intel chat lately, Chris. I think there's a lot of good information sharing taking place. I'm excited for this one. We've got a, quite a few really, really good things lined up here, but I just want to echo that sentiment and just say a huge thanks to folks out there who are continuing to contribute and continuing to offer some really, really good insight for us. Yeah, and I know we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago and we weren't quite there yet, but the last time I checked, we were just over a thousand users in the Slack community now. So I think when I looked, it was a thousand seventeen. So we did it. <laughs> we crossed we the made number. It. Yeah. Yes, we did. Yeah. Next one's ten k. That's right. We're uh, we're we're on the path for it. And our Intel chat too. I'm looking over right now. Our Intel chat's over two hundred fifty, which is great. So this insight's really reaching a lot of folks. Oh, uh, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, July's been a super busy month for the whole team at Lima Charlie, and I don't think we're done yet. This coming weekend, a large portion of the team is heading to Black Hat. Lima Charlie is going to be set up with a booth in Startup City, spreading the good word and giving away t-shirts. And Matt, you're going to be doing some training down there, right? I will, yes. I will be there with uh, the team, with Eric Capuano and the team at Recon InfoSec will be doing network defense range training in which Lima Charlie will be featured, a key part of the security stack there. So if anyone is looking for some last minute training, by all means, come down and check us out at Black Hat. Uh, I will be there starting on Friday of this week, which will be August 4th, I believe. And quick call out to our listeners. If you're going to be around at Black Hat, please, by all means, come by and say hi. Uh, We'll be that, as Chris mentioned, at the booth. I will be in training. We'd love to put some names or faces to uh, faceless names, if you will. And it would be great to see some folks and, you know, feel free to come by and say hi. And I didn't say this out loud, but I do believe there are podcast stickers to be had as well. So by all means, come and grab those as well if you're if you're in the area. We'd love to see you. Yeah, I just ordered another batch. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to connecting with folks down there. In fact, if you're listening and going to be there, make sure you come by the booth and say hi. I love making new friends, and I'm going to have like 200 t-shirts to give away. So I'll load you up with stickers and t-shirts. See how long it takes for us to get through those. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, let's get to it. Uh, The first one today is coming from Unit 42 over at Powell Alto Networks. They're reporting on the Malix ransomware, also known as Target Company, Fargo, or Tonichi, which is a strain that targets Microsoft Windows and has been active since June 2021. It's notable for exploiting unsecured MSQL servers as a penetration factor to compromise victims' networks. The researchers from Unit 42 have have observed an uptick of Malix ransomware activities, with an increase of almost 174% compared to the previous year. They've also observed Malix ransomware brute forcing, performing data exfiltration, and using tools such as network scanners. They've also found indications that the group is working on expanding their operations by recruiting affiliates on hacking forums. Like many other threat actors, Malix ransomware follows a double extortion trend, stealing data before encrypting an organization's files, and then threatening to publish that data as leverage to convince the victims to pay the ransom fee. 
The article gives a pretty interesting glimpse into the progression of a group like this. You can see their activity is pretty flat until December 2022, and then it would seem they figured out something that works, and they've been growing ever since. I know we're always making comparisons to legitimate businesses, but it reminds me of a company that is trying to bring a product to market, and after a bunch of learning, find that fit and start to grow. The main vulnerability to this group seems to be unsecured MSQL servers. What can our listeners do to shore that up? Is there authentication mechanisms they can lock down or maybe set up an allowed list of IPs for communication? Yeah, I think there's a combination of valuable things here. Number one would be obviously don't have these types of systems facing the internet. If we can absolutely avoid it, that would be one of the first things to implement there. Uh, Again, though, knowing that this adversary group goes after a vulnerable SQL servers, they might also be doing it through vulnerable web applications as well. So I would say that, you know, really locking down those types of resources and ways to get access to database servers are going to be key. Another thing I would add in, depending on the architecture and the structure behind it, I think an allow list is a, is a good way to, you know, if, if my database server, for whatever reason, absolutely has to face an untrusted or unsafe network segment, you better believe I'm going to be locking that thing down to the best of the ability to, to as much as we possibly can. Um, and I would, again, just really caution against having these things just kind of facing the raw internet, if you will. Um, I think, you know, SQL injection and, and vulnerable SQL servers, especially the way that this group is targeting it, um, is, is not something that's new to the to the community. I think you're picking on Malox's, and I'm assuming I'm saying that correctly. Hopefully it's not Malox because that's something very different. Um, but Malix's uh, targeting and, and technique is, is probably due to them just kind of figuring out like, all right, this is the entry vector that we're going to use. This is how we're going to slide in. And, you know, them then kind of exploiting that at mass. Uh, and if I go, I know if I go to some of those popular search engines like Shodan and things, I'm probably going to see thousands of exposed SQL servers. So I would probably start with locking them down, taking away internet accessibility if need be, implementing strong authentication mechanisms. But let's be clear here. Some of the vulnerabilities that they're taking advantage of might not be authentication based, might be more service or database operations based. So for that reason, if, if again, if I had to have it facing an untrusted network, I'm really going to limit what can be done from that trusted network perspective, if anything at all. And I'm going to lock my authentication mechanisms down to really strong authentication, good passwords. I think I remembered reading about some brute force dictionary attacks in this case. We obviously want to get rid of you know, easily guessed passwords and things like that. And really just changing a lot of defaults would would go a long way to shore this up, Chris. Awesome. That's great advice. And yeah, uh, showdown and things like that sure make it easy to find something once you figure out a vulnerability. Way too easy. Way too easy. Okay, so next up, an extensive analysis coming to us from researchers at Infoblogs. They are reporting on Decoy Dog, which is a malware tool kit which cleverly uses DNS to perform command and control. A compromised client communicates with and receives direction from a controller via DNS queries. That controller is integrated into a DNS name server to which queries are transmitted through the normal resolution process. Originally reported on April 23, 2023, analysis at the time confirmed that the toolkit was built on a remote access trojan known as Puppy. The researchers have done quite a bit of work decoding the communication protocols and were able to determine that the malware is under the control of at least three different threat actors which all seem to be confined to Russia and Eastern Europe. The analysis done by the researchers is quite extensive and I suspect this threat is not going to be going away anytime soon. Was there anything in this analysis that jumped out for you, Matt? And have you ever seen a threat actor use DNS for their C2 like this before? I thought that was quite clever. 
Yeah. So the use of, I'll answer in reverse that the use of DNS is, I would say, a little less common than what you'll see from like an HTTP, HTTPS, or TCP perspective, but it's definitely out there. I mean, we go back to solar winds, solar winds, that epic breach that we all lived through. That was a DNS based C2, at least at the onset. So lots of, you know, lots of good examples there. But I will say the thing that stuck out to me the most was just the level of complexity in the DNS architecture here. I mean, we're talking results based on geofencing. We're talking really, really multi-step domain resolution, uh, multi-step servers, compromise existing three, four layers deep, you know, before you actually get to a compromise system that they own. I mean, it was such a vast and, and massive scale of, of DNS infrastructure that it was, you know, admittedly very difficult for, I would say, probably your, you know, commercial off the shelf or AV scanners and things to recognize it because it just looked like a lot of DNS activity. You really needed network insight to kind of understand what was happening here and profile and, and rip this thing apart. The other thing I'll say is just patience from a threat actor perspective as well passing data through DNS and the amount of error handling and things that they built in the infrastructure here just really, really took into account kind of all the key elements of the protocol. So as much as I don't like to say it, whenever you see someone really using a protocol, I, I wouldn't say to its full intent, but perhaps to its, you know, to to its full capability, if you will, it is really just something very interesting to read through. So I, these threat actors, I mean, they really took DNS and broke it apart and thought about all the different ways. How can we package data in here? How can I multi-layer this geofencing capabilities, as I said before? How can I wrap frameworks and binaries and files and downloads inside of DNS packets? And what's the best way to handle, you know, uh, DNS being a UDP? What is the best way to handle a non-confirming or, you know, a, a, a stateless tra- transaction, if you will, a stateless protocol where I don't get that confirmation? Confirmationless, that's the word I was looking for. How do I handle those types of things, you know, as opposed to an HTTP or TCP based connection that gives me that really nice handshake and that back and forth and that confirmation and that resend, you know, uh, it's a much more stable type of protocol from a C2 perspective. And I think just, again, really understanding and then utilizing and DNS and it made it for a really good read. Hats off to the researchers as well at Infoblox for delivering this one for us, but it was a great read and good analysis of how they use their network infrastructure. For anyone curious out there, it is a 43-page report, but it is well worth it, especially from the DNS perspective and just seeing exactly how they used it to their advantage. Uh, when you see depth and complexity like this, do you automatically assume that it's a uh, EPT threat actor or do we see cyber criminals put this kind of investment into building other infrastructure? Well, interestingly enough, that's a really good question because it kind of speaks towards like time of investment and just how long you know it, it works out. I would say if it was five, seven years ago, 10 years ago, Chris, I would have immediately been like, wow, this is, this is definitely an advanced, persistent threat actor. Feels a lot like APT just because of the sheer amount of use that's gone in there. And, and historically, when you see this types of complexity and a heavy reliance on DNS, um, you know, SolarWinds, again, was the example I'll go to. That was an APT threat group. However, the, the kind of interesting side of this which I think, you know, speaks to maybe who might be behind it or, or maybe, maybe who's not, I'm not entirely sure here, um, really borrows from the data or the puppy code and kind of, you know, I love, by the way, the tongue in cheek naming here, uh, decoy dog play on words, a puppy, if you will. But that being said, 
I, I would not go as far as to say, oh, this is 100% an APT threat actor in this case. You know, you got to think sometimes skills travel down and sometimes skills travel laterally. And I think what someone did is they had, you know, a good starting point from a code base perspective. But Infobox even goes as far as to say, you know, we're calling decoy dog an upgrade to puppy. We're calling it uh, just some different things that maybe weren't seen there before. And I think in this case, it could be an advanced persistent actor, but there's nothing in it that really screamed that to me. It was more along the lines of someone who really understood how to architect a DNS network that they were able to use from a C2 perspective. I think that skill you can find, you know, I would I would hate to say this, I'm not an expert in hiring for threat actors, but I would say, you know, you've probably got some threat actors out there who understand DNS skills and understand DNS C2 infrastructure, and they're probably just available to the highest bidder, you know, and in this case, Puppy being what it is and who it's historically been used by, I think speaks to it could be either or, right? And I also would not go as far as to say this individual skills may have been present and individual, obviously it could be a group of people, may have been present in other areas as well. And what I mean by that is you may have someone who had an idea about DNS infrastructure, saw the way an APT group did it, and then borrowed some of that in their own architecture you know, kind of in, in their own constructing and putting this together. But, you know, I, I think, Chris, we definitely, if, if not an APT group, I think we definitely have uh, an advanced maybe operator here or an advanced malware operator to be able to take something like Puppy and go through and add so many different upgrades to it, build out an, ar- an infrastructure and an architecture like this. You know, this isn't someone's first rodeo. This was not a, a piece of malware for a, a CS class. Or something like that. You know, this was definitely someone who had an idea and they went and built towards that objective. Very interesting. And there's always that monkey see, monkey do aspect, like you were saying. There's a lot of GitHub repos out there with with good examples of bad things. That's the thing. You never know that 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 one. And you know, it, it's funny because I would I would argue that developers and entrepreneurs go through the same thing as well, where there's something on their mind and they can't really think about the best way to bring it together. And then they see or read about something and say, and that's the spark, right? That's the final, oh, that's what we've been missing. You know, I I would argue, and and this may be a far out example, but I would argue and say that, you know, whoever first, and I I know who, but speaking in general terms here, whoever first came up with Uber, right? There was someone out there who was like, oh my gosh, I knew I, I, you know, I had this idea, right? And, And then, and then we get Lyft. Right. So it's it's one of those kind of like, um, I don't think ideas are exclusive necessarily. It's just maybe who deploys it first, but then also one idea may be the one that sparks another. And I'm using Lyft and Uber just as examples here. I don't know the exact history there, but I, I think malware authors go through the exact same type of kind of business or development cycles where, hey, man, and you know, one night you're sitting around and you're like, man, wouldn't it be great if we could just do all this stuff via DNS? And then you're like, yeah, but that would involve this, this, that, that, and that. And we don't have time for that, blah, blah. And then two years later, some APT group does it. And then everyone's a little older, a little wiser, a little more experienced. Maybe they're a little better funded. And then they're like, hey, remember that DNS idea we had? Yeah, let's do it. Let's build it. And here we are, decoy dog, you know? There we go. All right. The next one coming to us from researchers at Signia. Their article is breaking down the infection chain for Caspinero, another banking Trojan targeting Latin America. This should ring some bells for anybody who listened to last week's Intel chat where we looked at threat actors infiltrating open source projects used by banking organizations in the same region. 
Originally reported in 2018, the Caspanero banking trojan, also known as Metamorpho or Pontero, surfaced in a mass mal spam campaign where users downloaded an infected attachment. This new report states that the threat actors are still using spear phishing to kick things off, but that they've evolved to use a UAC bypass, which enables them to execute code without triggering a UAC prompt. Anything here defenders should be on alert for? I feel like protecting against downloading zip or RAR files should be table stakes at this point, but is there anything we can do to set up defenses against the UAC bypass? Yeah, this is this is one that I think is going to be around for, for quite a while. Uh, by the way, you know, great research and great insight from Signia, and they do reference a blog post at, uh, over at Talos, Cisco Talos as well. I really like kind of reading through both of these and, and seeing what was going on. First off, I think targeting the region speaks a lot to what they're trying to go after. Um, you know, we've seen this described, uh, advertised, and distributed via mouse spam campaigns targeting what felt like Latin America, and of course, focusing on credential theft from financial websites. I mean, you know, banking info stealer 101 and whatnot. The UAC bypass, uh, that's something that's been around, I think, in quite a while. The, the best thing there is to really upgrade OSs or implement, you know, patches if, if need be without knowing exactly how the UAC bypass is working. Um, I didn't read that much into that particular part of it. Um, but I, I do believe that they take advantage of a Windows executable called fodhelper.exe, F-O-D helper.exe. And uh, in that case, you know, there there might be might be worth looking at uh, patches if they're out there or upgrades if they're available. Or I would talk to kind of the EDR AV vendor and I would just say, hey, you know, uh, worried about abuse of fodhelper.exe. Uh, what types of detections can I put into place? What types of things can be utilized and whatnot? And, you know, maybe getting around that. I mean, I don't think that this fodhelper.exe UAC bypass is something that kind of exists in perpetuity and has never been dealt with before. I'm guessing there are protective measurements in place. I think what this also does is it speaks to the adversary probably knowing their victims and understanding that their victims are likely leveraging maybe older style operating systems or less patched operating systems and then taking advantage of it that way. However, you know, like I said, I would probably look to uh, upgrades and, and technology to help out with those types of things. Yeah, and I, I think you mentioned it last week when I asked about the region being a target and you'd suggested that maybe the banking sector in Latin America is a little bit behind the times. Oftentimes, yes. That's obviously not a general statement. Chris and I never make generalized statements on this podcast here. But uh, a lot of times, and I've seen this just over the course of my career, Latin and South America tend to have a little more lackadaisical policies when it comes to IT security. And again, not a generalist statement, just a personal observation. And for that reason, you know, we still see these types of attacks taking place there. And, and I, I will happily offer a contrarian view to this, which is, you know, one period of time I remember very well was when credit card breaches were very, very big in the United States. And it was just vulnerable credit card system just all over the place. And the, you know, I, I would argue and say that the U.S. financial payment industry took a lot of steps to upgrade and mitigate that to where we have much more point of sale, encrypted point of sale transmission systems and things like that, which is the same type of advice I would give towards the Latin and South America is rely a little less on those types of kind of more open or more vulnerable systems and more on point to point encryption and whatnot. However, I would backpedal a little bit and say that this malware is targeting financial login information, which we all have and anyone has access, you know, anyone has the ability to uh, obtain and whatnot, which says they're going more after kind of like user-based login details, which 
you know, things like point-to-point encryption aren't going to help with, right? It's more about securing your OS. I will say, and and just doing some really quick searching kind of to get ready for this as well as kind of as we're talking about it as well. um, The vulnerability of FOD helper.exe is actually something that's been known for many years now and uh, is easily bypassed by a lot of different tools and solutions that are out there. But that being said, there are some mitigations in place. So if you're one that's worried about this or you think that UAC bypassing via this technique is something that's impacting you, there are some mitigation tools out there from the Windows OS perspective, as well as some registry implementations as well. So before I say it can never be fixed, I will say that there are ways to get around it, but it is one that has been around for a long time. So I would certainly look at getting detections in place for this, whether you think you're at risk of this particular Casmonero infection or not. So next up, we have some research coming from Sophos XOPS researchers. Back in mid-June, they identified a previously unreported initial access malware campaign that leverages malicious advertising or malvertising to impersonate legitimate software and compromise business networks. They have dubbed the campaign Nitrogen based on some strings found in the code. It is primarily an opportunistic attack campaign that abuses Google and Bing ads to target users seeking certain IT tools with the goal of gaining access to enterprise environments to deploy second-stage attack tools such as Cobalt Strike. Apparently, Sophos mitigated the infections they observed before further hands-on keyboard activity occurred. They deemed it likely that the threat actors meant to leverage this infection chain to stage compromised environments for ransomware deployment. The only thing that stands out for me with this one is the initial infection vector. It seems to me like Google and or Bing should share some culpability in this or have some mechanisms for spotting these. I think most users would have a certain level of trust clicking on a paid advertisement for a well-known piece of software. What are your thoughts on that, Matt? Yeah, so this is another really interesting take. And I think, Chris, what you mentioned is probably like the quintessential problem here is Hey, it's a sponsored ad. It, it should be trusted. It should be legitimate, right? It should be good to go. Um, I have a really cheeky answer to that is, well, Cobalt Strike requires a business license in order to work legitimately. You know, and I think as long as we have systems like this in place, you're going to have threat actors who abuse them. And you're right. They're taking advantage of that trust of that. Well, someone paid for this. So clearly it must be legitimate or it must be a thing, right? It must be safe to click on. I think they're definitely trying to take advantage of that viewpoint and they're taking advantage of exactly what you said. Like, I would assume that it would be safe. So if I click on a thing, it should be okay. I will say, I I don't know exactly the systems. I don't know anyone who works in this case, but I do know that there are some anti-fraud or or anti-malware mechanisms in place over at them. They're obviously clearly not 100% effective because we're still seeing, you know, malvertising campaigns come through. But I think on the whole, there's probably a large deduction or a reduction, if you will, in capabilities that we're just not seeing, Chris. And, and there's probably a figure out there, which is like, you know, malvertising reduced you know, 70% year over year. But of course, we've still got to deal with the remaining 30%, which is where we get, you know, campaigns like this. And I'm just pulling numbers out of thin air. But I think it's more one of those, they're trying and doing the best that they can. But that being said, you got to think about the systems that are in place at some of these search engines as well. You know, there is a system for a legitimate individual to come and click on and purchase an ad placement and do a thing and get in front of viewers and, you know, get in front of the audience that you want to get in front of. I mean, those mechanisms are available there. And if I'm buying that access, but I'm going to subsequently push you to a site known to be infected with malware or a malicious downloader or something along those lines, 
I tend to resort back to, well, they'll do their best to shut that down as quick as they possibly can. But the line between, you know, me buying it for legitimate purposes and someone buying it for illegitimate purposes is very thin in that case. So I would say, you know, a little bit of maybe mitigation here could also fall on user education. And I'm not blaming the users whatsoever. I don't think this should be an entry vector. But I will say users, you know, be careful what you click on, be careful what you download. That has never changed. That approach to being careful with what you're downloading and what you're installing off the internet has never changed. I mean, I can remember going back to days where someone was trying to build only verified software repositories that would say, hey, we only offer software that have been verified as true and legitimate from the developers. And it's kind of like, well, okay, so now the source of truth lies with the developer and hopefully they've never done anything wrong, you know? And I would, again, put it in the same bucket as be careful what you download. And if, you know, Bing and Google ads and whatnot have mechanisms in place, I hope they continue to make them stronger. Yeah. And this is why checksums and mechanisms like that exist. It's just a matter, I think, of, like you said, educating users to really look at what they're installing on their machines. Exactly. Exactly. And then, of course, you know, things like um, having different types of endpoint security in place. I mean, even AV will sometimes catch the lowest hanging fruit. I do know that operating systems now have like safe browsing capabilities and different types of web application content filtering and things like that, where they might actually catch somebody and say, hey, you're actually, you know, downloading something potentially malicious. Be careful what you're doing and just being careful about it in that sense. So I think there's lots of mitigation and preventative measures here in place, just making sure they're enabled and then utilize them. But it always going to fall back to the old, you know, as a user, be careful what you're downloading. Don't, you know, trust but verify. Mm-hmm. All right. So the next one I have on my list is a report from VirusTotal that will be interesting for anyone who is interested in learning about the larger trends happening across the cybersecurity landscape. They've just published the VirusTotal Malware Trends Report, Emerging Formats and Delivery Techniques. A few highlights from the report. A few highlights from the report that may or may not be a surprise. Email attachments continue to be a popular way to spread malware. Although malicious PDFs have slowly decreased for the last few months, in June of 2023, they observed the biggest peak in the last two years. OneNote and JavaScript distributed along HTML are the most rapidly growing formats for malicious attachments in 2023. And ISO files are being disguised as legitimate installation packages for a variety of software, including Windows, Telegram, AnyDesk, and malicious crypto notepad, among others. Along with lots of stats, the report also breaks down some of the techniques they are observing and includes lots of interesting information for anybody charged with protecting organizations. Anything you want to add to that one, Matt? You know, interestingly enough, I I think uh, a lot of it's things that we've talked about on this podcast before. We've seen kind of over the years, you know, talking about PDFs, um, email attachments and spear phishing being an interesting way in. We've talked about ISO files before. We've talked about uh, malicious installers for things like Telegram and AnyDesk and remote access tools and whatnot. So first off, I, I like the confirmation, you know, that that what we've been talking about it aligns with <laughs> some of the popularity reports that are out there. Um, no, other than that, I, I, any defender out there, any detection engineer should be reading through these types of things, in my opinion. It gives you a really good insight into what to be looking for. And hey, you know, I'll, I'll fall back on percentages rule here as a takeaway. Does it, you know, they talk about ISOs being a popular delivery mechanism or as an installation package, if you will. And I'll go back to someone else, you know, are ISOs the only way? No. But if I implement, you know, detection mechanisms for ISO downloads, 
how much of the threat landscape can I close off? And if it's a, you know, 10%, 15% or whatever, then great. I'm going to go ahead and do that to shut those things down. And I tend to read these types of trends and I look for really, really discernible things that I could look for, could detect against. And for me, like ISO files as an email attachment is just one that I will always, always pick up on and say, we should definitely be looking for these. If you consider the victim audience and whatnot, Chris, you know, I've, I've worked with many organizations in my life. I've never seen an accounting or a marketing or an HR department that passes around ISO files. They just don't. It's not their preferred vehicle of medium. Now, if there is a department out there that does it, I apologize. Again, not trying to generalize, just speaking from experience here. I, 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 it's not a common vehicle. It's not a common vector that I see being passed around. So I would go as far as to say, I bet a significant number of organizations out there could just implement a defense that says, you know, if email attachment equals ISO, just flag it for interesting respect. But if you find a, a department or an individual that does it, then great, you have an allow list. But otherwise, I, I would even go as to argue is outside of technical people, how many folks are downloading ISOs these days? And how many times do you interact with an ISO file outside of an operating system installer? You know, and I would tend to say, all right, cool, let me take a trend like this. The other, that, the other side of that is OneNote. I think OneNote is an interesting delivery vector because there's a lot of organizations that use OneNote. So this one introduces some intricacies and some certainly, of course, some areas to be delicate because you don't want to shut down business operations. But I would go as far as once again to say, how are my users interacting with OneNote? How are they sharing them? And is there a vehicle or an anomaly here that I could pick up on and use to detect some malware coming into the environment? Yeah. The next one comes to us from the Trellix Advanced Research Center, who have identified a novel method for exploiting the SearchMS protocol handler. It was already known that attackers were exploiting the SearchMS protocol through malicious documents, but the researchers here have discovered attackers directing users to websites that exploit the SearchMS functionality using JavaScript hosted on the page. They also observed the technique being extended to HTML attachments expanding the attack surface. When the users visit one of these websites, malicious JavaScript initiatives search on a remote server using the SearchMS URI protocol handler. The search results of remotely hosted malicious shortcut files are displayed in Windows Explorer disguised as PDFs or other trusted icons and look like local search results. The article outlines a bunch of different phishing techniques that are used against potential victims and is definitely worth a read. What do you think of this technique, Matt? And is there anything that comes to mind that would make a good defense for this kind of attack? Well, I got to say, this is another one of those really, really interesting reads. Uh, another hat, you know, another hat tip to the defender, to the researcher uh, over at Trellix for posting some of this knowledge here for us. Um, interestingly enough, uh, they categorize this as an exciting discovery, which I will argue and say that if you are a victim of the spearfish or a victim of the attack, you probably don't classify it as an exciting discovery. But it falls into one of those same categories where you read about a technical capability of a threat actor and you can't help but say, wow, that is very interesting. A really, really good, you know, a, a really good understanding of what they're abusing and how to abuse it and how to misuse it and things like that. Um, really interesting infection flow chain here. I think that's the thing that stuck out to me the most, Chris, is the more and more we talk about different malware families and threat actors and ways of doing things. When you see the graphical infection chains of how they go through these different steps, I mean, we're talking about, you know, once again, uh, a search MS URI protocol handler from either a Spearfish or an HTML attachment, some other form of attachment there. Um, there is a file server in, in between there, which kind of renders these results. 
user clicks on an LNK PowerShell script to an ISO, to a DLL, to a RAT, to an EXE, to more PowerShell, to a decoy PDF, which actually gives the user what they were looking for. I mean, there's just so many different steps and layers built into this because adversaries know that if they're a one or two step shop, that it's going to get caught by EDR and it's going to get shut down, they're going to be done. You know, so I think this really speaks to the defensive capabilities needed to defend against these. Is you've got to have, you know, tools that can give you that deeper insight into some of these capabilities, some of these techniques here. Um, understanding the search MS URI protocol, how that works, how that can be used and abused is a good starting point. And then writing detection rules based on that or writing, you know, looking for detection capabilities based on that. I'd also say that sometimes we've mentioned this on this podcast before. The entry vector is maybe not where I'll focus my detections, but more on the common denominators between them. So again, if I look at the infection chain that goes through, there's use of PowerShell, there's use of ISO or zip files, DLLs, EXEs, and things like that. And you know, maybe I don't have a method right now for understanding or parsing out the search MS URI protocol, but I could definitely wrap some detections around one of the you know next stages, which is malicious LNK files or uh, malicious PowerShell scripts and things like that. I think that would be a good place to start until someone's able to get a little bit further down the line into that network stage. Because um, again, this this uh, research does involve a good bit of network analysis where I can get to that search MS protocol and then start to write detection rules against that as opposed to on um, host-based rules alone. Yeah, definitely some interesting stuff. And again, it speaks to like the trust. If those search results are showing up on your desktop with an icon next to it, you're not going to second guess clicking on it. Again, subverting user trust. There's a lot of money in it. All right. Last one for today coming to us from securityaffairs.com. It's a bit of a goldmine for researchers and cyber criminals alike. Apparently, the source code of the Black Lotus Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, or UEFI, rootkit was leaked on GitHub. The stealthy bootkit is able to bypass Secure Boot on Windows 11, and it's not good. Secure Boot, as our listeners may know, is a security feature designed to detect tampering with bootloaders, key operating system files, and unauthorized option ROMs by validating their digital signatures. Along with bypassing Secure Boot, it is also able to load unsigned drivers to perform a broad range of malicious activities and supports a full set of backdoor capabilities. The Black Lotus malware has been available for sale on hacking forums since at least October 2022 for $5,000 USD with an ongoing cost of $200 per update, but it is now available to anybody and with all of its IP available for analysis. One positive is that the leaked source code is not complete and apparently most of the tricks and techniques disclosed have been known for a while. What was your take on it, Matt? Is this leak going to spawn a new wave of threat actors or is it just more of the same old? You know, interestingly, I, I think this is actually a trend that we've talked about in this particular episode is it once again might be that spark that ignites some other creative juices in some other developers that are out there. Um, the first thing I do want to note for everyone here, and, and I don't have a way to validate or verify this. I am simply quoting right here. But there was a uh, C, the Alex uh, Matrosa, the CEO of Binary. Um, actually did some analysis on the source code and came back. It doesn't really find it to be that significant of a threat. Um, so maybe this isn't as bad as it sounds. The other thing that I'll, re- I'll start to point out for everyone here first is, hey, even threat actors can release their crown jewels on GitHub. So if you <laughs> leaked an API key out there, don't feel bad. Like, you know, it doesn't happen to anyone else. Everyone shares in that problem. 
What I think this will do, though, Chris, and again, I'm reading through and looking at kind of the infection chain here, the size of the malware, which, by the way, 80 kilobytes, what a tiny, tiny piece of malware in this case. Anti-virtualization, anti-debugging, code obfuscation, disabling security solutions such as HVCI, BitLocker, Defender, bypassing things like UAC, Secure Boot. I mean, there is a lot of bypassing and a lot of evasive techniques built into this thing. There is a CVE and a patch available for it. However, again, I would go as far as to say that this might spark the interest of some folks looking to develop in this space or not able to put that final piece of code together. But I don't know if we're going to see a whole bunch of new adopters and users of Black Lotus. Again, I think it'll fall to, um, you know, utilizing and kind of breaking apart the source code to the best of their ability to maybe implement some key features. But I'm pretty, um, and again, I'm leaning heavily on industry analysis here. But, you know, he does go as far as to state the Black Lotus leak shows old rootkit and bootkit tricks combined with new secure boot bypass vulnerabilities and can be effective in blinding a lot of modern security solutions. So the, the quick takeaway there, Chris, is I don't think this is, you know, everyone's going to go download and all of a sudden they can evade all of this. But for smart coders and developers, they'll figure out the missing pieces and make it happen. So I think we'll see an uptick. It might be a single digit percentage one, but I don't think we're about to see a huge world rocking thing. And I hope I'm right in that prediction. But uh, this is not, you know, code that everyone can just as easily start to write and put together. This one requires a little bit of understanding and reverse engineering some really low level ring zero systems. Yeah. And remind me, can a bootkit can survive a OS reinstall, correct? Depending, I would, I want to say yes at the surface, um, but it's going to depend on the operating system's involvement with the UEFI. Um, again, if you're thinking of kind of like at that BIOS level where you've got really low level system interaction, then you absolutely could have a piece of malware survive. But I, I think in this case, only because the article refers directly to kind of like, you know, bypassing up-to-date Windows 11 systems and whatnot, is that you're likely looking at something that takes advantage of, and I'm looking through the infection chain right now. It just bypasses um, Windows when it boots up as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, it's going through and it's hooking into the Windows boot process. It's not necessarily at the machine level. And, and I am seeing here, you know, it is a shim in Microsoft boot mgfw.efi and stuff. So it's the operating system's interaction with UEFI. It's not necessarily like a BIOS or really, really low level type malware where it's going to survive no matter what. Right. Yeah. Burn it all. <laughs> That's right. Just uh, just don't use the computer for a while. You'll be okay. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Well, this has been another great one, Matt. Thanks again for coming out. Um, yeah, we'll do it again in a week, I'm sure. Chris, it's always a pleasure to be here with you. And just a quick reminder for everyone, next week we will be out at Black Hat. So if you're going to be out there, by all means, please come by and say hi. We'd love to see you. Yeah, maybe me and you can try and do one live, live on the floor, face-to-face. Ah, there we go. Intel chat live from Vegas. I like it. Okay, All right, beautiful. Sir, take care. Look forward to it. Bye. Yeah. And that concludes episode number 52 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.